0: corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon.
1: My name is Michael Guyon, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Joelle Faulkner of Area One Farms. Uh, Joelle, you and I spoke a while ago. I'm glad uh, we're finally connecting here. Introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, Who are you? Uh, what's your educational background, and how did you get involved in uh, farmland?
2: Uh, sure. So uh, lots of education. Did I, School was kind of my thing. So I did uh, engineering, business, and law. Um, I'm from a farm, so my parents and brother have a dairy farm. So I got interested in or grew up knowing the industry. And then my brother was wanting to expand our land base, and so I got interested in kind of how – Investors look at and invest in farmland around that.
1: Okay, so so in terms of that that aspect of having the the family farm for a second, um, do you find that most farmers? It's sort of a function of having grown up with their parents being farmers. Uh, is there is there? a lot of interest in people basically doing lateral shifts into uh, farming and farmland?
2: Oh, uh, no, there's not. It mostly is people who come from farms. It's a hard industry to get into for a bunch of reasons. One is the capital aspect. So if you're coming from a multi-generational farm, you have land and equity in that land that makes expanding much easier than starting, because in general, farms don't cash flow or can't consistently cash flow like at new land prices. So you need to actually have some multi-generational equity in it. Uh, And then the other part is people think of running a farm as being a relatively straightforward thing because it's been done by lots of people over a long timeline, Um, but it's not. There's a lot of pieces of the business to manage. And unless the farm is giant, it's usually a one person making most of those decisions. So huge financial decisions, huge risk management decisions, huge kind of crop marketing decisions, decisions about debt. And so in when you think of normal businesses, you'd actually have lots of different people making all those decisions. And in, in this business, it isn't the case. So having, you know, 20 years where you passively saw somebody make those decisions and you have somebody who can kind of full time mentor you on why they didn't have issues in the 80s um, when there was a huge drought and poor market prices and high interest rates or how other people avoided that is just so valuable and important.
1: And I'm going to assume it's not something you can necessarily easily formalize as a course or as a degree.
2: Yeah, that's right. Because you don't, well, I guess some people might be able to learn it that way, but it's, it's just so hard to learn all those aspects and to even know What they all are. So, with all of my education, I've been in this business now 10 years, um, and I'm only starting to be able to be valuable to our farm partners on a lot of those aspects. Like, a lot of there's a subset where I've always been able to be helpful, um, particularly around, you know, buying land and like things where I was doing lots of transactions between everybody, but crop marketing, planning, and advice. I'm only getting comfortable with now. Um, and and I have lots of education and it should be a thing that I could pick up, but like it's, it's not just the one thing. It's that there's 20 things like that. And so without some history, it's hard to figure out what all those are, and it's hard to make good enough decisions on the 19 you don't know to stay in business long enough until you learn them.
1: Let's tease out some of the, as you alluded to, some of the complexities, things that people don't really think about or realize when, you know, those who are not farmers think about farming and think about the business of owning a farm.
2: Uh, So if we just think of expenses and revenue, so if we just think of the basics of what it's going to take in terms of cash flow, you have to, have generally a mortgage that you're managing, but your revenue line is going to be both market determined. So both how the market does, because you're selling into in our case we're selling commodities. So wheat canola oats. So you're selling into a market. You don't get to pick any of the prices. And then you're selling into a market that you have to time right. So maybe the prices look really good in January, um, but you don't know if the full crop is going to grow. So do you sell 20% of your crop in January or do you sell or do you sell 50%? Uh, So now you've had to pick what commodity to grow, when to actually sell that commodity. You have to make sure that you haven't oversold it, but you're at risk for both quantity you're going to grow. And then on anything you haven't pre-sold, you're at risk for the prices. And so that's, so there's a lot of things you aren't controlling on your revenue side. And then the biggest revenue side is uh, that nobody usually thinks about is like how big an effect weather is. So to put it in a context that non-farmers would really understand, when COVID happened and the whole world had this huge, giant freakout and COVID affected what people could do and what the economy was doing, but from a percentage basis, actually... Compared to what weather affects farmers, it didn't affect it very much. Farmers are used to that every year, so they are planning a whole business, both what they're gonna spend and then how they're gonna think about what they're gonna grow in its revenue line in a world where every year you're gonna have a chance of covid times three basically like like in a bad crop year you're going to grow less than 50% of your total production, of total planned production. And so it wasn't like COVID where, you know, it shut things down and you had to figure out how to reopen and maybe that took you 2 months or 3 months or 4 months, but it probably didn't take you 6 or 7 or 8. Um but on a farm, you get to one of those and now you've you get to a bad weather year and now you could be down 60 or 70% of your crop. So everything that you've promised to sell, you have to be able to deliver and you have to be able to deliver it at quality that you've guaranteed. And uh, and so that's and that's just on the one aspect. That's just on the revenue side of what will my farm take in this year. On the expense side, when you buy fertilizer and fuel and how much infrastructure you have, so the capital decisions you're making for storage and the capital decisions you're making for machinery, and whether you're gonna have more labor, but older machinery, so it's cheaper, or less labor, and you're gonna be running new expensive machinery, like like each one of those in in a big company, would be run by a different person. Somebody would manage machinery decisions and capital decisions. Somebody would manage financing decisions. Somebody would manage crop marketing or general marketing decisions, um, which is really sales. Somebody would manage production and they'd have a whole bunch more control than a farmer does. So um, that kind of gives you an idea of like what what somebody's dealing with that, that just makes it more than what we think of as somebody to deal with in a normal day-to-day business
1: and what's the um what does the level of sophistication look like when it comes to trying to model out weather events or how that might impact revenue and and you know to your point about fertilizer the expense side it's so going back to the earlier part of the conversation right it's a lot of uh, knowledge passed down from generation to generation obviously very specific to where you are in the world but is there is there an in, in increasing number of uh technological implementation that makes the planning more accurate? Or is it still uh, sort of a, a volatile uh, revenue and expense uh, side to deal with?
2: There, incrementally, there's lots of things that are getting better. We are getting higher crop yields because technology is changing. That's mechanical technology. It's biological technology. Seed design, like there's a lot of pieces that are that are making farming more productive, but the risks of farming remain largely the same, and risk management decisions are really, really big decisions, um, and probably will stay that way. So, to your, so I don't think like like is it getting a little more predictable? Sure, but it's kind of the same as you saying like, hey, you're gonna. You're going to plan an outdoor event on the week of October 10th with no backup plan for it. And can you tell me if it's going to rain or not? Well, you certainly can't a year out. You probably can't a month out. You're lucky if you can two weeks out. And if you have no backup plan, it didn't matter anyway. Like a lot of what you're dealing with is that. And then on the marketing side, you know, everybody is a trader and nobody has, you, you know, you might have some good views and you might make some calls, right. And you might take advice from people who look at lots of technical aspects of pricing and weather aspects of pricing and, and timing and all those things. But, but those aren't like the world works in really funny ways. Um, and so in, you know, you take pre-COVID, post-COVID, like the whole world thought that or was telling most people were thinking that inflation was very temporary and supply chain related, including all the banks were announcing that. And then one day they just all decided to change. And you see that of crop markets and you see that across a lot of aspects of things. So I don't think, I think the best you can do is be a good risk manager and say, okay, what is the risk tolerance that we can afford to have and that we want to have? And how do we think about implementing that?
1: You had, um, you had mentioned mortgages. Um, you know, obviously when most people think about mortgages, they think about homes. Yep. Um, talk talk about how that process looks uh, for a farmer and how do higher rates globally impact the, 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 the potential to scale and then bring down food prices? Because I think this is where it gets to be kind of interesting in the sense that if you have higher rates to counter higher inflation, but now you can't necessarily have as much, as much expansion of farmland because of the higher rates, then food prices, uh, it seems to me, would stay elevated.
2: I think the two are running on different inputs. So uh, food prices affect inflation right they are a big part of how we measure inflation and when we have higher inflation banks tend to raise rates uh, or at least they are right now and so so it is like there may be a cause and effect going that direction it doesn't necessarily work the other way because there are so many decisions that go into what an interest rate is going to be um, and they're made in by relatively few people that that as a farm, you just have to deal with it. The positive to farms is it is an in, what's called an inflation hedge asset. So farmland tends to go up as there's inflation because in part crop prices are up. So profitability is up and that profitability is generally up more than the interest. Um, so you're looking at it in a way I never have. I've always looked at it like, well, you know, interest rates are going up, but our profitability is also. And where it's going to really be painful is when crop prices come down and interest rates haven't yet, which will for sure be true at some point. For us, because we're doing very basic commodities, crop prices are um, a little bit determined by these kind of other inflationary aspects, but a lot determined by global production and demand. So how much food is getting eaten and how much is getting produced and that production Amount is largely a weather question because farmers all across the world are trying to produce as much as they can. So uh, when not a lot gets produced, prices go up. And when lots gets produced, prices come down. And because it's a commodity, that really is affected at the margins. Um, And I think that's a much bigger effect than where interest rates are on commodity prices and food prices.
1: That, that that point you mentioned is that lagged response I think is is intriguing right so race to elevated crop prices come down and so actually that that it's actually that will be what will keeps the the pricing elevated now uh, just on a, on a depending on on demand obviously um, so that's the that's the owning side let's talk about the the renting side um, which again I I I'm surprised maybe just because I'm not in the field obviously that there is obviously farmers that do rent farmland to to farm on how does that look like um, broadly speaking in canada a uh,
2: lot of people so canada's stat is i think 30% or so of farmers or of the land that is getting farmed is rented from others most of it's rented from neighbors who used to farm for their families so most of it is farmer who wants to retire doesn't want to sell his land yet rents it out to the neighbor who's always had a good relationship with and that neighbor farms it. The retired farmer eventually gives it to his kids. Maybe they keep it and keep renting, or maybe they sell it. Um, but it's a, on average in Canada, I think it's about thirty percent of the land base is rented. And you, it's an important piece to the whole ecosystem because machinery kept getting bigger, and so. That means you either need to buy more land to make your machinery efficient, or you need to rent more land. But in any case, you need a bigger land base. We'll be back after a
3: quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So Sal, for those uh, who aren't familiar, I've had Sal on a number of these spaces. He uh, he launched a number of these ag-based ETFs and the questions around, um, Joelle, what do you think about farmland prices not really declining when crop prices decline? Is it because of institutional demand for land?
2: Okay. Canada sees a little bit of a different. So I invest in Canada and I invest actually entirely with farmers who are producing. So not in a landlord tenant model. Um, so my dynamics are a little different. Canada itself is a little different because the Canadian dollar actually hedges a lot of crop price volatility. So the US sees a bigger reaction to land prices going up when commodity prices going up and land prices coming down when commodity prices come down. The question of how much is the influence from institutional investors is a really good question. It probably actually has to get answered much more specifically to the geography than it can kind of on an across-the-board basis. Uh, But what we see, at least in Canada, is those investors tend not to be the ones that drive land prices. Land prices tend to be driven more by, meaning your high-priced buyers, are actually neighboring farms, where it's, it's less important to me whether land is you know one place or a thousand miles away because i just need it to be near a partner we work with but it's really important to the farmer beside that land that if they can buy it now they do because they're not going to get another chance for 25 years or more on average for how land trades so um so i actually am not totally convinced that it's institutional investors driving land prices uh that may be true in certain geographies and it Would also potentially be more true in the US where you see more of them, but even there it's a really low percentage. Um, And so I think probably there's a bigger question, which is how come land prices don't decline when crop prices do decline? And the answer to that is you have to look at this as a really long term cycle. So, same as you kind of think of risk management across the farm, we're making plans on 10 or 25 year cycles, like really on the generation of people that we're working with. And so uh, we don't need land to react exactly quickly to changes in crop prices, because if you could afford to buy it when you did, you planned on owning it for 25 years. And so hopefully you can still afford to own it and then you don't need to sell. And if you don't need to sell, you don't need to push prices around. (laughs) In- inherently the the one thing that farming kind of gets right in both countries um and part of that is that there are some good downside protection programs uh, but one thing that farming kind of gets right is it is still family-owned businesses that have built up and continue to build up lots of equity through hard work and actually if you could have a vision for the country that said you know instead of one, like Amazon, you had one company that was doing that well, but at a small scale for every 10 people who worked there, that would look a lot a more like agriculture across the country. And I think that's a great outcome. But Sal, I totally agree with how how you're seeing land move.
1: Well, and, and that actually, that dovetails a little bit into what you do, Joelle, with Area 1 farm. So just explain to the audience, um, how do you get in, involved in this idea? What kind of work uh, you do with farmers? Talk about the business
3: overall.
2: As you said, there's a number of institutions that invest in farmland. They, broadly speaking, you can divide it into what's called row crop land. So uh, crops that are planted in rows that are annual. So you're switching them over time. Corn, soybeans, wheat, canola, rice, cotton, etc. And farms that are what's called permanent crops, Uh, so orchards, um, nuts and fruits and things that grow repeatedly, And, uh, and how institutions involve themselves in those two aspects generally differ. So generally in the permanent crop, they're taking over both ownership and management, but in the row crop, they are buying land but renting it to a farmer. And to Sal's point, that's partially because family farms are going to be more efficient than their operations, and it's partially a risk management decisions, and and they're they're harder in some ways to manage. The in our case, we're in Canada, where it is mostly row crop, so it is very little um, permanent crop, and so we work with row crop producers primarily, and. In our case, our view is that in addition to family farms being extremely efficient, they're also very good decision makers about what land to buy, how to improve that land, which there's a lot of opportunity for here. So how to make it more productive over time and more valuable by doing that. And that uh, because Because they're really good operators, and especially with support can be really, really good operators, that we can grow the pie by working together. So rather than buy land that I don't know in a place I don't know, um, at values I I don't know, uh, and then rent it out to, to people there who don't get an ownership interest and then don't necessarily treat the land like they have an ownership interest... Our approach is to partner with farmers, and that is in two ways. The first is, or it has kind of two outcomes. The first is we actually buy everything in partnership. So we don't talk to sellers, we talk to buyers. So farm family comes to us because there is a landlord that they've rented from for 20 years that wants to sell to them, and uh, maybe that's 2,000 acres, and maybe their home farm is 2,000 acres. If that landlord had been 300 acres, they could buy it on their own with bank debt. But because it's such a big addition to their home farm, it is beyond what they're comfortable getting debt for or what the, their com- the bank is comfortable lending them. And so we buy that in partnership with them. In some cases, we actually also then buy into machinery and infrastructure, so bins, etc., uh, into their main farm so that they can spend more of their money on land as opposed to depreciating assets. Then they're generally in land, which has historically been an appreciating asset. Um, and so the first part is unlike other buyers, they actually buy with us and own with us, which means they can partially buy a thing that they couldn't fully buy. The, add on to that is they continue to buy in over time. So as they have available money, they can move from being a 10% owner in that place to a 20% owner to a 30% owner. And that incremental purchasing, kind of like what Sal said before, isn't, isn't a normal thing. Usually you have to buy a farm or not buy the farm, but you can't take extra money you have this year and buy more of that same farm. So that enables that. The second piece and the piece that really builds a lot of alignment and value, and for us lets us uh, have farmers do really well on the equity side, is that in addition to the part that they own, they earn 10 or 15% um, of the income and appreciation on everything we own. So in addition to the money that they have in that's growing because the asset value is growing, if our asset value grows, they earn some of that also. You see this structure in a really normal way with tech companies. You have a tech company, you have a tech company founder, they have equity. And so even though somebody else is funding the capital piece of it, their equity is growing because they came up with the idea, because they're bringing expertise, because they're running it. Um, and that's a totally normal thing in non-capital intensive industries. It's a really normal thing. So you see it in kind of management incentives in op- big operating businesses. It's a really normal thing in tech companies where the growth is going to come through scale. So it's going to be that like once you make this entity, it actually scales really well. And so the managers can, you can afford to give the manager some of it. Um, and you see it in really highly educated roles. So CEOs, CFOs. You don't tend to see it in what would be more thought of as blue collar workers, so people who are showing up uh, or management roles with less educated people. And you don't see it in capital intensive industries. So you don't see, like, hey, when you're building a mine, the guy running the mine is actually earning part of what that mine produces. And that's just a societal decision. Like, as a society, one, on the capital side, it's hard to fund that because you have to convince yourself the person's doing a valuable enough job to give them some of the upside. And a lot of that upside is just going to come from normal market appreciation. Um, And second, we have tended to incentivize along kind of educational lines. And so just like I started with where I said, you know, it's a really hard, complicated business that you need a ton of experience for and lots of expertise and some humility and good decision-making that set of things makes us comfortable that with good partners, we should actually share what we earn with them. Even if that is just coming from the market going up. And because of that, because we share appreciation with our partners, they can actually afford to buy us out even as land prices increase And that's a really important thing for our farmers who eventually want to own the farm um, or buy us out at least in part. And it's a really important thing for me because it means when we're buying land, we're going to buy stuff that they want to own. So it's going to be good quality. We're going to buy it at prices that make sense in the area. So we don't have to worry about, to your earlier question, about being a group that pushes up prices We're gonna buy things where we can actually do a lot of this improvement work. So 30% of the land base that we buy and operate, we actually do big improvement projects on to make the land more productive. And those are equity creating projects. Like we spend less on it than it's ultimately worth because we have to do a lot of work to get there. And that works really well managed. So that is our approach. It is a very unusual approach. Um, It takes a lot to, to oversee and, uh, manage and make sure we have the right partners, but it's been extremely rewarding. So,
1: so everything I've heard, I've heard from you, Joelle, yeah, unequivocally, it's a, it's a unique business model. Have, have there been some, um, some new entrants, some competitors as you've been operating with this approach?
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Uh, not that I know us. So, so there's lots of groups that have gotten into farmland, like over the decade we've been doing this, so buying farmland. And there's a lot that have gotten into that in niche ways, um, mostly still renting property out, but some of them operating under kind of unique things like organic or um, carbon sequestration-based, like some of the kind of ESG banners. There hasn't been on that, what I call the like S side of ESG, like the social side where you actually work with farmers and make sure that they're doing really well in the process. And part of that is it's really hard to manage, right? Because if you think of of a place where you're buying land and leasing it out, you buy it, you get somebody who's a decent tenant, you get two checks a year from them, you usually get them post-dated, so you're getting them both right ahead of time. And, uh, that's going to be important to, to, because it's easy to manage in our case, when we have a farm partnership and particularly like across, you know, machinery and infrastructure and stuff like that, we're talking to the farmers twice a week because they're making decisions at that kind of pace. We're running all the expenses through our office to make sure everything gets paid on time and our books get kept up to date. We're uh, we're thinking through opportunities with them. And so on a risk side, we're managing both for opportunity, but also for fraud, like that nobody's taking things off the farm, et cetera. Um, and then, but from a, And from a kind of relationship and opportunity standpoint, we're running a ton of extra work through our office because we're running real operating businesses rather than picking up rent checks. And that has huge value in terms of what we do. But it means if you like to copy it, you actually have to want to do all that work. And there's not a lot of people who want to do all that work. Thanks so much. Yeah, we don't have we we stay relatively low profile. Over time we'll, we'll probably change. Um yes, so so the specialty crops and niche operations are actually a really good fit. And what they would look a lot more like to us than our row crop operations is our land improvement operations, so where we're buying land that's overgrown because it was previously logged and was just kind of a mess and we're cleaning up that mess and turning it back into row crop production. And bringing it back into agricultural use. Um, That actually looks very similar to kind of the capital trajectory that you need when you're replanting orchards or some of the infrastructure that you need on some of the vegetable producers and how that's both an infrastructure piece, um, but a lot of capital going into the land for, for kind of redevelopment at scheduled rate. Over time, we do expect to expand geographically. uh, We're probably at the point where we're starting to understand what the U.S. looks like and what parts of that become interesting um, and places where we can be helpful. Because uh, like you said, part of why, part of what works for us is that there aren't a lot of people doing what we do, but we actually work in areas where what we're needed for is really valuable to the farmers. Um, And that isn't everywhere. Like if you can find, if you're just as happy renting from somebody and there's people who will buy and rent to you, then like, we don't need to be there. Uh, So and the U S is a really big place. So I'm just at the point now where we're starting to, to understand that geography and what would the specific geographies within the U S be ones that, that we should look at under this model and within that, what kind of operations would be very valuable to us and would have the expertise going in of the right people who want to expand. But I really appreciate your enthusiasm for what we're doing. So we have, so ours is long-term capital appreciation in the land itself. And that would vary by geography, which gets to your early question about like what happens uh, when land comes down with commodity prices coming down, or if that happens. Canada has seen very little of that, partially because the dollar does hedge some of the, current, the commodity prices movement. Um, so it is a more predictable, potentially, area of land appreciation. Because we do this land improvement work, we actually create a bunch of value that we can continue to create. It looks a lot more like manufacturing process than it does either like farming or relying on the farmland market. So we build appreciation through that work. Um, so most of our return comes from appreciation, either because of the market, land prices are going up, or because we're doing that land improvement work and creating value through that, and then. Uh, we we have profit from operations. So from the farming operations themselves, we aim for a higher return in total than most funds. So we have a generally high, slightly higher hurdle rate and aim for a higher return, but we actually don't guarantee cash distributions. So you'll see a lot of funds where they're gonna guarantee that they're giving you 2% a year or 4% a year. And what they're doing is if their revenue is or their profits below that, they'll be taking out debt to give you that money. So theirs looks more like a bond. Ours doesn't. So what we tell investors is, don't expect anything in the first five years because we're going to take all the money that we make anyway and reinvest it into this land improvement work. And in the the five years after that, so on an initial timeframe, you actually have to be invested with us for 10 years. The five years after that, Will give you profit as we make it after we pay down debt. So, again, don't expect very much in terms of cash flow. And what we're aiming for is a strong total return. And why people like it, which mirrors why they like the asset class generally, is it has been a very stable inflation hedge asset. So, low volatility and relatively high returns compared to other asset classes. But it really only works if you're if you're willing to put it on a long time horizon, which is why we start at ten years. And we can run secondaries like if you somebody you know they have actually need to leave, we do that. Most of our investors are institutional, so that becomes much less important. Um, And most of our institutional investors are looking for kind of a twenty five year time frame, and so we actually do have. Uh, extensions that we expect to end up with that allow people who want to stay for longer to buy out people who want to stay for less time so that we can think about this as a 25-year investment. And it's a standard limited partnership structure, so taxes work well, etc. As I said before, we are only in Canada, and so it is Canadian structures. Um, And so if we ended up in the States, it would it would be an American structure. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Which is why we start at that 10-year point. Because then we start talking to the farmers about what pieces they want to buy back and and all the things like that around year eight. And we take two years actually to make sure that we have plans that they can have enough time where they can finance them, et cetera. So we don't actually operate in Saskatchewan because... um, the Saskatchewan rules don't allow for institutional investors like land ownership rules. Generally people are against or funds, I guess are against restrictive land ownership rules because it prevents certain investors. I'm not like, I think farmland is a really unusual and unique asset in that there's lots of food security reasons that you'd want to have it owned and operated locally. Um, but like I said before, part of it is just that I think it has built a really good economy of of essentially family entrepreneurs that can continue to afford to be efficient and productive and having well shared between lots of or in lots of people is probably better on the whole than having a couple companies own a lot of stuff um, and so so we don't mind that but we don't operate in saskatchewan
1: let's talk about for a moment Joel. just the uh, sort of what happens to communities uh, from from over the last decade or so you've been doing this uh, around the farms that you're helping to improve right so there's 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 obviously the kind of equity component of it, and then there's the stakeholder component of it. What what are some of the um, positive externalities that that happen from doing this kind of work?
2: So, especially in the areas we're improving, they're largely areas that that have some farming, and then timber and often mines. And the really big plus to having more farming is that farming's what's called a labor absorption industry. So, if and mines and, and timber tend to be boom bust. So really good economic times, they're booming. And so taking a lot of labor and paying really high wages. And then on a dime, commodity prices come down and there's less need for real estate comes down. And there's less need for timber because of that. And they flip into laying people off. And when they lay people off, farms actually at certain labor rates, so when labor gets cheaper, they They hire extra people because they do extra projects. They paint barns, they put in fences, they take out fences, they clean up sections of land. Um, And so in addition to it being a really good employer uh, locally, it's actually a really good essentially safety net for rural communities because it can absorb extra labor. Uh, So part of it is more farmland just means more of that. The second piece, just as you'd expect, is more workable farmland creates a lot more jobs than timberland, where you're only harvesting once every uh, couple decades. And the third is because we have local ownership and local decision making and local earning of that kind of extra appreciation, the way that just money tends to work is that wherever the person who's earning the money is, spends it primarily in that place. And makes decisions that will more likely benefit where they are, and so we get extremely strong ESG outcomes because the farmers are making on farm decisions and what I say that that is uh, like it's uh, schoolyard enforcement if you're a jerk to the community like communities only have a school, so if you're a jerk you're send your kids to school, your kid gets beat up, and nobody wants that, so nobody's a jerk and Uh, their kids go to school and they get treated nicely. And so you actually get really good decisions in terms of environmental, um, social, and both because you have good governance. And in our case, we measure actually good governance by proportion of decisions that are made on farm. We think that is probably your most important metric to understand if you're going to get good outcomes across the other areas. And I mentioned it to the woman who we deal with at PRI, like Principles of Responsible Investing, because I thought it was funny. Like I mentioned this joke and I said, you know, it's this weird thing with Rural. And she said, actually, it's not. They moved to a system of regulation because head offices have gotten more distant from operations. But if you look at the companies that really revolutionized worker engagement and satisfaction and kind of work life, so Hershey and Ford, the owners of those companies were living in the towns where the plants were. And so part of why they are thought to have really um, improved work conditions is because they lived in those communities. And so you actually have always seen that throughout history. So that piece we're really proud of, and we're really careful to make sure that we maintain local decision making for that reason. Uh, And then the second piece is we're big employers and especially in those, in that land improvement piece we're really big employers because it takes a lot of work to get land into shape as you'd expect. From a globe, the, the one piece that I think is probably as important but certainly gets talked about less is it from a global perspective. Everything we're doing is rain fed. So we're on dry land farming almost exclusively, meaning all the, water that goes into our crops comes from rainwater. And uh, as we think about trying to feed more people in the world and trying to do that in an environment that probably warms, and so there is less rain, especially at the equator, it is important to be able to take and export water essentially efficiently. And the cheapest way to do that is through crop. So I think in a country like Canada, where we have a lot of farms, Uh, Sorry, where we have a lot of farmland, um, but a small population. I think it's really valuable that we are able to feed more people. And so I looked at one of our farms yesterday. Uh, One of our investors wanted to know kind of the improvement work we're doing, et cetera. And so one of our farms in the land improvement work that we've done over the last eight years can feed for every year, on average, it will feed an extra 280,000 people globally for all their caloric needs, Um, which is something I'm really proud of, because because I do think that food insecurity globally is both going to be a real problem and certainly a geopolitical problem. And the more that we can export into those markets to lower food scarcity, um from places that are very environmentally sustainable the the kind of stronger our our outcomes are as a global citizen as well
1: would you consider that more of an outlier in terms of the the improvement of of the amount of oh yeah yeah like, now this, that's sorry kind of that one's a
2: huge outlier because in that case we are taking and reclaiming land that was historically farmed and then went into so private land Historically farmed, so 30 or 50 years ago, it was farmland. It ended up growing over because the owners took jobs at mills and mines and became overgrown with trees. It then went into timber production. So the timber was cut for profit, and we acquired it after that and are cleaning it back into farmland. So those kind of numbers just aren't possible when you're starting with really great, productive farmland that has been farmed for the last 30 years because it's already great and productive. So it's it's only in this one little niche um, where we do this kind of very heavy improvement work that you can get those kind of big outcomes.
1: Yeah, and I, I've got to I, – I liken it to sort of a, a fixer-upper.
2: Yeah, right? yeah, from, exactly.
1: Uh, from a housing perspective, totally. right? It's kind of the idea. So, so, But but, I've got to assume, and this is just me just thinking out loud, th- there's probably a, a lot of opportunities like that globally, right? The, the challenge is it's so fragmented and dispersed that it, it's hard to even identify where those opportunities are.
2: Yeah. So we think you have to be local to identify them uh, or your your best case is local. So we part of why we look at partnering is farmers come to us and they say, hey, in my area, the thing that would really be helpful is X. And some of those areas, it's going to be incremental adjustment, but some of those areas may be ones like this. That's true in developed Countries, good rule of law, good land ownership rules. It is actually not like there's a whole bunch of other complicating factors. When you get into countries where the issue isn't that people don't know how to improve the land, it's that they don't know if they can rely on being the owner afterwards. So um, developing country X where the land title might not be secure, You can't afford, from a political standpoint, to go in, spend a whole bunch of money cleaning up land, maybe installing irrigation on the land, like doing things that would dramatically increase the productivity, even if you know what it is, because if the government ever turned around and said, hey, you no longer own that land, you would be out all of that investment. And so uh, from an irony standpoint, I think... You would dramatically bring down crop prices and bring up production if you could get political stability globally and good rule of law. Because if you could really invest capital in the way that we do get to here, um, but do that in countries that uh, have been politically unstable and have, for lots of reasons, meant much less productivity per acre, you would... You would have new bread baskets globally, some of which used to be bread baskets, and that would be a wonderful world outcome. Unfortunately, from a global perspective, it doesn't look like we're getting more political stability. Um, it kind of looks like we're getting less. So it doesn't look like that's going to be the thing that, that sort of highly increases production, but I do think it would be a really wonderful thing from a food security and supply Standpoint.
1: I, I love that that connection to rule of law. 100 uh, percent agree with you. It Makes com- complete sense. Everyone's focused on on the idea that there's not going to be enough food or that food prices are elevated. But if you just if you had a stronger rule of law, there's there's more comfort in uh, broadly investing globally, so that there can be uh, more food uh, for for everybody. Um, let, on the final point here, again, everybody, please make sure you follow um, Joel here with the Area One Farm Twitter handle and Salgo Birdie. As always, um, you mentioned ESG a few times. Is it fair to say that the broader ESG uh, push is where you really can add a lot of value? Because maybe a lot of these not as formally educated farmers wouldn't necessarily know how to how to kind of abide by you know these these kind of new rules that are coming down the pipeline. We don't
2: think so. So uh, it's a it's a really good question, and we've been. Working on it a lot with our partners. Um, but where we're really strong on ESG is the S and the G. And part of the reason we're really strong on it is that we have local decision making, meaning the lo- we actually think the local farmer is going to be better at making decisions that result in good outcomes than we are from a distant head office. When you get to the environmental side, the thinking around what is good environmental policy is both partially popular culture and then partially scientific. And for the last, like for the 10 years I've been in this, I actually think it's been more popular culture that has driven it. So um, often, historically, like in the kind of very recent history, you'd think of organic as being good environmental. Like people, kind of regular people, connect those two things. They like eating organic. They like the idea that planting organic would be good because it involves less inputs um, and that would be good and for lots of reasons and lots of geographies that is actually not an environmentally good outcome you grow lower crop yields so now you're doing higher prices which totally works if you're a really high income earner and can afford organic but does not work for most of the global population and certainly isn't feeding people on two dollars a day Uh, and from an environmental standpoint depend if you are rain fed and in drier climates it means lots of erosion because you then rely on pillage as the way to decrease uh, weed populations, which you need to control. So, so I don't think we've done ourselves any favors from a popular culture standpoint. As we move to what people are thinking about now, I actually think it does get more scientific. And so we are moving from sort of organic or limiting inputs to thinking about regenerative production, which is really thinking that in addition to chemistry of the soil, we actually really care about biology of the soil. And that biology can help us grow a good crop. And there is a ton of data to support that. And the methods that people are thinking about should work. The issue that we see is when you try to translate those methods from uh, research farm, so small acres, lots of attention, doesn't matter if it makes money, to a commercial farm, so family farm, does matter if it makes money, bigger acres, less time for each acre. Even if you can have really good scientific outcomes, you actually need a really good management plan. So as a farmer who's managing, let's say, 3,000 acres of row crop commodities, if, you, if we want to implement something like a cover crop, I have to know a good seed that I can plant that is strong enough that it grows after I'm done harvest so it doesn't interfere with my crop and weak enough that I can kill it off quick in the spring so that I can plant something else and it doesn't become a problem. So first I need to know what seed. I need to know what that's going to mean from a labor and machinery standpoint. So do I need a different tool? Can I use the same seeding and harvest tools? Do I need to add an activity? Does that mean an extra person? Can I get that person? Or is that in a time period where I can't get them? And so what I think, like what you're saying is, hey, can't, if you understand the science, can't you help these farmers adapt? And what we're finding is the piece that is missing right now in lots of cases isn't the science piece. It's actually, the knowledge base and expertise to to even tell us how to adapt. And over time, that will develop. So I'm quite confident that regenerative production will revolutionize how we are operating. And over the next 10 years, everybody will end up switching to something that involves more of that. Because one thing's for sure, there is no farmer who wants to pay more for nitrogen. Like You can lower my input bills and I'm 100% with you. The the logical piece that you said is like, okay, well, if you have the science, can't you connect those dots? And we've been working a lot to figure out how, and it is not super simple. So it will be an evolution, not an instantaneous uptake. And I don't think we'll be better at it with the farmers. I do think because we have some time at our office, we can help them navigate through um, seeing what expertise exists. I don't have, I don't know the specifics, so I don't have specific comments on that. Um, I do think that there are there are many decisions that countries are going to make that are decisions about whether they should regulate a change. That is especially true, you saw it in Netherlands and, and Canadian government kind of moved around on it a bit. Um, here, but what you saw is, like, around should nitrogen be reduced across the board because it's a carbon emitter like to get to urea? And, and what should that be? And should it be regulated or should it be left to the farmer? And the struggle globally, as you say, when you say, hey, this is a big deal because Netherlands exports a lot, is that we really need food. And we need food because we need a lot of people to eat. Because we have a big and growing global population, and we have had more volatility in production because of weather than than maybe we have even historically. I don't know where people will land with whether that should be regulated or technologically driven. Like if you give farmers better tools to make more crop per acre, then we will be able to do that on less land. And so taking some land out of production kind of doesn't matter then. Um, It will also be driven by consumer choice. So so if people decide they don't want to eat meats anymore, then we'll have more calories that can go to people instead of to animals. (laughs) Uh, I think social change is really hard. So I actually think like it's pretty unlikely we're going to get big changes on how people decide to eat. I think the regulation piece is a really big question because it, it as it always is. It's like, you know, if you're going to annex any land from anyone for anything, you're going to have some people who are pretty upset. And so you have to think about how to do that and whether it's worth it and what the outcomes are going to be. And the world is dealing with a lot of hard problems at the same time um, on climate and the risks that that brings to countries, on food security, etc. And one of the hardest things I actually think is that your big food exporting countries are not necessarily... Or for lots of reasons, they aren't the countries that are relying on this really inexpensive food, so this really big production. And I think hunger is really scary. Um, and I think it's a it's a thing that as a globe, we probably need to come to some decision on how we're going to manage for other countries that rely on the exports. But again, to say whether that should be regulated or not regulated, I'm not the person sitting in that seat deciding whether uh, this decision is going to help us in some other way maybe it's a flooding issue for the country maybe it's production issue maybe it's where people live like countries are balancing a lot of hard things all at the same time and and are making decisions and I don't know if those ones are right or wrong um, but I do think probably more than than has been in a long time there's a lot of things that Individual countries are going to have to think about both because they're thinking about themselves and because there is a really big global population to make sure gets fed. And if it doesn't, we are, we are going to have people die from hunger, which, which might just be an outcome that governments are fine with. Um, but I think that one's a scary outcome.
1: On that happy note, I think we <laughs> we'll this uh, space here. No, no, no. Everybody, yeah, please make sure you follow every single person up here. Joelle, uh, real pleasure uh, hearing from you, uh, different than the other kind of spaces that I run, but I think it's uh, a lot of interesting uh, things that you said here. Uh, Joelle, we'll be in touch. I appreciate everybody that's joining. Thank
3: you, everybody.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions don't forget to follow at leadlag report on x instagram threads and youtube and check out the leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com use promo code podcast30 for 2 weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes Corrections and bear markets.